0: Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it has been a major month for the Supreme Court and abortion. On December 1st, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. A challenge to Mississippi's ban on almost all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And then on December 10th, the Supreme Court issued its decision in a pair of cases involving SB8, a Texas law that bans almost all abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. Joining me today to unpack both of these is Mary Ziegler. She's the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law, and she's the author of two books on uh, abortion, Abortion and the Law in America, and After Row, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate. Mary, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with the SB8 cases and Just to be clear, these were not cases that the court's decision by Justice Gorsuch emphasized this. These were not cases about whether or not SP8 itself, the ban on abortions beginning in the sixth week of pregnancy is constitutional. But can you just give us a a brief summary of what was going on and what the court's ruling was?
1: Sure. So what was going on um, in the case, obviously, just as a quick refresher, SB-8 was a Texas law banning abortion at six weeks. The state outsourced enforcement to um, private citizens who could sue either abortion doctors or those who aided or abetted them for at least $10,000 each abortion. And the it, the reason Texas did that, there were several reasons, but the legal reason um, centered on the limited ability one has to sue states in federal court. And the court, of course, carved out an exception to that, an ex parte young that applies to state officials or who are charged with enforcing potentially unconstitutional laws. Those state officials um, can be brought into federal court. But Texas was arguing essentially there are no such state officials in our case. We prevented state officials from enforcing this law or bringing lawsuits, so there's no way to get into federal court and any relief is gonna to have to come in some other more limited kind of whack-a-mole way. And the Supreme Court had let this law go into effect um, in September, uh, had in, in doing so eventually issued an order suggesting that there may be no way to challenge Texas's law effectively in federal court, then seemed to have a change of part, uh, put both the abortion provider suit and one brought by the Biden Justice Department onto a kind of rocket docket, um, and now we get these rulings today. Um, the court, first as to the Justice Department suit, the court dismissed it as improvidently granted, essentially because if the abortion provider's suit could go forward, the Justice Department's basis for intervening seemed less appropriate. The Justice Department had essentially said Texas has blocked the usual channels for constitutional challenges, so the federal government Has to take an extraordinary step to vindicate constitutional rights, the court essentially by letting the abortion providers suit go forward found no reason to um, engage those sort of tricky questions the Justice Department had raised. The provider suit, the court voted um, eight to one that the providers could sue a limited subset of state officials, those charged with licensing in Texas In doing so, the court got pretty into the weeds as to what SB8 says. Part of the law mentions that nothing in SB8 prevents these officials from enforcing other abortion laws in the state. And to the justices in that eight justice majority, that made it seem as if those state officials did have some enforcement authority, notwithstanding Texas's best efforts to insulate them from suit in federal court. That said, a majority did not find, right? There were five to, no five justices for the proposition that you could sue the attorney general in federal court or that you could sue um, state clerks. Uh, and that raises questions as to whether or not whatever remedy comes from this ruling is gonna be complete. In other words, whether there's gonna be a way to prevent all SBA suits from going forward or if this is, again, going to be a situation where abortion providers are kind of constantly putting out fires or having to rely on state suits, raising constitutional defenses in state suits to make whatever claims they want to make.
0: Yeah, I mean that seems to be the real question that, I, as I was reading the decision, was trying to parse through, because at first it sounds like, oh, eight to one, the lawsuit can go forward, but it seems like the, the real question and... and one that people are still sort of working through is what is what exactly is it actually going to mean as a practical right. matter.
1: Yeah, and I think that's challenging. I mean and, and I think that question needs to be answered both from the standpoint of what does it mean for Texas but also what does it mean for, you know, SB8 style laws going forward? Because of course as Amiki in this case suggested, other states have been looking to SB8 as a model for circumventing other constitutional rights, whether that's something like the right to free speech or particularly the right to bear arms. And nothing really in the court's decision today foreclosed that kind of strategy um, because really this was focused on a quite narrow, in my opinion, quite narrow part of SB8 dealing with these licensing regimes that would not necessarily be a problem for states if they, they tailored their laws a little differently. So I think what it means for other SB8 style laws is that that's still very much a going concern. I, I don't think other states are going to be discouraged from experimenting with that from this ruling. Um, in terms of what it means for abortion providers um, and for people in Texas on either side of the abortion issue, um, I imagine you know we'll see when this returns to the lower courts, I would imagine some kind of pause on SB8 from the district court at some point since the suit has been allowed to go forward. And at least until the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade, SB 8 is in obvious tension with with Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But whether that actually changes anything for people in Texas, I think remains to be seen because part of SB 8 um, has language essentially saying that if uh, people perform abortions while the law has been enjoined, that they can subsequently be sued if the law is later upheld by, by a court for conduct during the injunction. So I don't know, given the Supreme Court's seeming interest in overruling Roe, to what extent doctors are going to want to resume providing abortions, even if this suit you know does go forward, which it will. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty that the court has created. Um, that may make the practical effects of this ruling for people in Texas less than we might first anticipate.
0: Were you surprised? I I have to say, you know, as somebody who was in the courtroom for the oral argument and heard the justices, some of the conservative justices, voice concerns about this provision that you you just mentioned, the idea that, you know, people could be held liable for abortions that they performed even while the law was was enjoined and the concern that SPA copycat laws could be passed in other states and used to abridge gun rights or free spe- speech rights. Were you surprised that this, this was the outcome?
1: I was, yeah. I mean I, I think I wrote something um, you know, and have said publicly that I thought the oral argument went badly for Texas. I thought that several of the justices who you know are often cast deciding votes in cases like this including uh justices kavanaugh and barrett seemed concerned about what an asb 8 style model would mean justice kavanaugh in particular homing in on the ramifications for the second amendment and so um i was i was surprised at how narrow this ruling was um, it's suggestive it suggests i think to me that the, the justices on the courts most conservative wing, Justices Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas may have more influence on, you know, the ultimate outcome of these decisions, and certainly on the thinking of, of, of Barrett and Kavanaugh. and oral argument may have suggested.
0: Yeah, so I guess this one goes in the pantheon of cases with the Affordable Care Act argument of you know, that you have to mention when you talk about oral arguments not necessarily being a great predictor of, of the way things will come out.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let, let's talk about a, another oral argument. Let's talk about the <laughs> right oral after, after
1: debunking the theory that oral argument tells us anything. Let's now talk about an oral let's argument. Let's now talk <laughs> about oral argument. Um, let's talk about the oral argument
0: in Dobbs. Um, mm-hmm. Going into the oral argument, you know, before we get to the oral argument stuff, what were you looking for?
1: Well, I was looking, what I expected um, was a a court focused on viability. Um, I was was not expecting, and I don't think most experts were expecting the court to want to overrule Roe immediately in Dobbs. Although I certainly thought the decision to take Dobbs suggested a, a really keen interest in overruling Roe at some point. So I expected to see more questions suggesting that viability didn't really have a central place in abortion jurisprudence that viability didn't really make sense ethically, didn't make sense as a matter of original public meaning, um, didn't really even have a logical connection to equality or autonomy values. That was the sort of thing I was expecting. And then I was expecting to see, um, again, Justices Thomas or Alito signaling their interest in a broader ruling but not necessarily having company yet. And what I, what I heard, <laughs> of course, was um, Chief Justice John Roberts being interested in viability and a, a potential ruling centered on viability that didn't go to the heart of whether there was a right to choose abortion or not. But I, I didn't hear a lot of the other justices necessarily being that interested in joining him on, on that path. Um, most of the justices, including Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh seemed much more focused on the proposition that there is no right to choose abortion at all. And so the, that was you know, quite, a, quite a revelation, I think, for me in listening to the argument
0: you know, the chief justice was really the only one really, like, in the court and among the advocates, you know, he was trying to float this idea, and none of his colleagues were really taking it, and the lawyers weren't taking it either.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah, the the lawyers, I think, had both legal and political reasons for suggesting that there is no middle ground in this case. I think legally, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelager and um, Julie Reichelman both, I think believe that viability has been a central part of abortion rights jurisprudence and also that if viability goes it's not clear what would replace it without abortion rights becoming sort of a ghost of themselves legally i think of course this liter- sister general from mississippi also thought that viability was the central central part of roe and casey and that getting rid of it would be to effectively overrule roe and casey but there i think there were practical reasons for arguing that as well i think mississippi is concerned about a sort of casey part two scenario where you have what looks like a partial overruling of Roe or a gutting of abortion rights that could then be revived by a subsequent more liberal court. If in theory, the right to choose abortion remains even in some kind of very, very re- reduced form. I think conversely for uh, pro-choice folks and their attorneys, there's a real incentive to make um, a loss a clear one because that of course abortion will have returned to state politics, to federal politics, and to state constitutional law. And I think there's an assumption that if there is going to be a backlash to a ruling overturning Roe, that that will require public awareness of what the court has done, which would, of course, require a clear repudiation of Roe rather than some kind of murky, you know, obfuscating, (laughs) complicated opinion by the court.
0: I want to play a clip from Justice Amy Coney Barrett talking about
2: adoption
0: and
2: safe-haven laws. Ms. Rickelman, I have a question about the safe-haven laws. So Petitioner points out that in all 50 states, you can terminate parental rights by relinquishing a child after abortion, and I think the shortest period might have been 48 hours, if I'm remembering the data correctly. So it, it seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasized the burdens of parenting, and insofar as You and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities. It's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, you know, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. However, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter?
0: Can you sort of explain for our listeners what you think she was getting at with this line of questioning and, and what it what it might mean for for where she'd be going
1: Well I think what she was trying to get at was centered on the idea of reliance interest so when the court um, considers whether to overrule a precedent it often considers whether people have structured their lives around the legal status quo. And in the abortion context in in Casey, the court focused on the idea that the availability of abortion access that helped um, women and other people who can get pregnant achieve more equal outcomes when it came to things like career and education. And so Barrett acknowledged that eliminating abortion access would have effects on people's ability to control when they could become pregnant. And she said, that's a concern about bodily integrity sort of along the lines of vaccines or unwanted medical treatment. But if people don't want to parent, if that's the equality or reliance interest at stake, then these safe haven laws, which allow people to um, surrender newborns at certain predetermined locations for usually some statutorily determined period of time, usually between 72 hours and 30 days, um, if they can do that without penalty, then is there really much of a concern about people parenting if they don't want to? So I think, that signal that Barrett was not convinced that there were reliance interests or that if there were, they weren't that weighty because people would have, particularly women, would have a way out of parenting if they didn't wanna do it by putting their children up for adoption and could do, they, they could do so without facing you know, criminal charges. And so
0: there, there was also discussion
1: not only about
0: the Mississippi law and Roe and Casey but about the broader implications of a ruling that overturned Roe and Casey and what that might mean for other lines of cases involving the mm-hmm. right to privacy. So sort of, I guess, where were the, the various justices on that, on that point?
1: Well, so it, it was hard to tell, right? I mean, so Justice Kavanaugh, I think at various points tried to make this tried to be quite clear that this was not, would not, that overruling Roe would not mean overruling lots of other precedents. So in the sort of list of decisions he had seen overruled that he thought had had sort of socially desirable results or culturally desirable results, he included Obergefell versus Hodges, the court's same-sex marriage opinion. He seemed to want to want to foreclose the possibility that the constitution recognizes fetal personhood, and therefore, renders abortion unconstitutional. He kept saying, "You know, the Constitution is scrupulously neutral." He kept asking Mississippi Solicitor General to to clarify that he did not mean that the Constitution was pro life. In in Kavanaugh's words, some of the other justices were less clear on this point. Justice Thomas asked questions about how to define the right at issue in the case. That certainly could easily apply to a wide range of other substantive due process rights, including rights to same-sex marriage or contraception or a variety of other things. Um, Justice Alito asked questions about the original public meaning of the Constitution at the time the 14th Amendment was written that easily could apply to a wide range of other rights. So. I don't think, I mean, my sense, and it's, it's hard to tell from the questions, but my sense is that the, the court's conservatives may not all be on the same page about whether the overruling of Roe would mean that there would have to be major changes to the rest of substantive due process jurisprudence. I, I, I sense that there may not be agreement on that, but uh, the, the justices were, I think, less clear on that than they were on their skepticism of, of Roe as a decision.
0: And so we've very recently learned that making predictions about how a case is going to cash out, as Justice Kagan might say these days, um, based on the oral argument can can be perilous, but based on what you heard at the oral argument in Dobbs, where do you see the court going?
1: I mean, I'm expecting, based on what I heard, that the court will overrule Roe in Dobbs and say so clearly. Um, I, I would be I mean, I imagine that if that's the way the court is going, the chief justice would would more likely than not join his conservative colleagues. I don't think he would want a decision overruling Roe to be five to four. But I think even if I'm wrong, I think we'll see a decision overruling Roe, you know, a year or two down the road. So this does not seem to be a court that in any kind of conceivable scenario believes that there is a right to choose abortion or would continue to hold as much for you know very long if at all
0: well I think it will likely be a while before we get the decision in Dobbs but hopefully mm-hmm. we can well have you back to talk about it when we do
1: sounds great I'd love to come back
0: thank you so much I really appreciate it
1: yeah my pleasure
0: that's another episode of SCOTUS talk thanks for joining us and thanks to our production team
1: Katie Barlow Eleanor Erskine Angie Goh and James Ramoser